Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. ESNY. episode of the Hoops Addicts Anonymous podcast and Elite Sports NY production recording on the evening of Monday, December 21st, uh, a little past uh, 5.30 at night. Rolling as always with my homie Chip Murphy. Chip, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good, man. Very excited for Markel Fultz right now. <laughs> yes, it's, it's like extension day and we got a lot of guys uh, whose wallets are getting uh much bigger and and good for them, you know, due to all their hard work. And I know uh, you as a, a Magic fan are definitely pumped mm-hmm. for Markel. Very much. And and J.I. too. Happy for yes. both of them. Jonathan Isaac. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, our guy, our guy, Aki Dean, is, is probably smiling somewhere. Um, the trainer that worked with him. So very, very good for Jonathan Isaac as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We are very pumped tonight. Uh, we, number one, we're just pumped that NBA – Basketball is going to be starting soon. Uh, we cannot wait for these games to get going. Um, we've been, you know, we've had our, our four preseason games. We're, we're done with that, and we're getting into the beginning of the season. Um, but we are very honored. We have a very special guest here tonight, a very talented writer who has, uh, her work can be seen in Bleacher Report, The Athletic, um, magazines like Slam, Complex, um, and she's recently accepted a position working for The Ringer. Once again, very pumped to have on the show tonight, Mirren Fader. Mirren, what's going on? Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Just quarantining like the rest of us. <laughs> yes, and I figured that's kind of where we would start. Everybody's life in the quarantine is is very different. So I figured we would just start off with how are you in general? Um, hope all is well with you and your family. Um, but just how is quarantining, uh, you know, kind of, kind of been so far? It's okay. I think I'm pretty lucky. I have some friends who are, uh, suffering with COVID, which is hard, but, um, it's just me and me and me. I have been (laughs) hunkered down by myself here. Um, luckily, uh, people have been available over the phone. I was a little worried at the beginning, you know, how, how would it change for me? Because so much of what I do is like meeting one-on-one in person, but I've been pleasantly surprised with the availability of people. So that's good for me. Absolutely. Um, and that was actually your one question I wanted to touch on. And, and I know you spoke about it a little bit already. How much does that change your process? I'm sure that being able to read facial expressions, body language is such a huge part about what you do in in terms of being able to connect with somebody that you're interviewing and building that trust. Um, But whether it's being available over the phone or Skype or Zoom, 
How have you found that process in terms of your day-to-day writing? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely different. It's not as good. You know, little things like you mentioned, like gestures and stuff, little things like somebody's eyelash is twitching, you know, like you, you think these are small things, but there's just no substitute for that, like in person, getting to know somebody and like understanding how they are. And I think, um, fortunately, I've found that people have been vulnerable over the phone, like you're still able to make that connection. Um, and maybe it's because everyone is just miserable and sad, and maybe they're willing to be more open during this time. But um, I can't wait to get back in person, you know, it's it's different for me. I. I, I think that's, I love writing, but I love reporting. And I, I really miss like just the connection you can have in person with someone. Congratulations on the Giannis book, which, oh, thank I, you. which I don't think it's possible to forget that you're writing a book about Giannis because I think <laughs> it was announced the exact same day as his contract extension. So I want to get the name of it exactly right. Giannis, the improbable rise of an NBA MVP. Is that? Yes. Correct? Okay. August, 2021. Okay. Just wanted to get that right. And you wrote an article about Giannis's youngest brother for Bleacher Report. So obviously you're very familiar with Giannis's entire family and you're very dialed in there. I just wanted to know how you became involved with the Antetokounmpo family and this came about. Yeah, it's so random because so I've um I've profiled a lot of younger athletes. You know, I did a story, I've done LaMelo Ball profiles. I did a story on um Jalen Green and my editor was like, Giannis has uh this brother and I think he's really good. Like you should go to Milwaukee and profile him. So I was like, okay, you know, I like profiling younger guys um, just because you never know what they'll turn into. And it's like very interesting to catch them at the beginning of their journey. So I I didn't know that he lived with Giannis. I thought Giannis was going to be like out, you know, being a global superstar. And he was in the house and I was just like, hello. (laughs) (laughs) And it ended up being... (laughs) you know, I was with them for the day and I ended up noticing their relationship was again, talking about in-person stuff. You see the connection between them and it's so clear. I can't write about Alex without writing about Giannis. And then it became a story. The profile on Alex, I think revealed as much about Giannis as it did about Alex. And um, I've been wanting to write a book for a very long time, trying to find the right idea. Wasn't really working with different um, agents and publishers and whatever. But when I when I published this, I met the right literary agent and we both agreed that this was like a very human story that could make for a book. You know, it had length to it. Um, and, uh, geographically it had length to it too. So, um, yeah, that's how it came about. And then I, then I got the deal and started writing it. So it's so weird how things just a random chance encounter ended up being the first book. Very cool. And the extension too, when that was announced, (laughs) how surprised were you that he chose to stay in Milwaukee? Because I know there was different lines of thought. Some people thought Toronto and Dallas obviously were there. What what did you think? Were you shocked? I I was kind of more in the middle. I was surprised, but then I wasn't, you know, I thought it could have gone either way. But then when it happened, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Okay, this goes very much in line with Giannis's story about loyalty and like not forgetting where he's come from. And um, 
not wanting to give up on the franchise that didn't give up on him uh, when he was a rookie and, and was not a great basketball player at all. He was trying to crack the rotation. So um, it's, it's really full circle to see this happen. Now, me and Jeff are huge Knicks fans. So mm-hmm. we've heard the stories about how the Knicks allegedly were the only team that <laughs> did not go scout Giannis when he was like a top prospect in Greece. Now, is that at all true or is that just Nick's slander? Can you confirm or deny that? Yeah, can you confirm or deny that? That is true. It is true. I think it's funny that Giannis always has his best games uh, at the Garden. Um, and I don't know if it's because of that reason. <laughs> oh, my God. That's that's rough. That's but he was but he wasn't, you know, I have to be honest, like, okay, yes, a lot of teams were there and they should have been there. But he he it wasn't like, look at this. It wasn't like Luca, you know, it wasn't like a can't miss prospect. It was in this dinky gym in the A2 division. He wasn't Giannis. I guess the only thing that Chip and I have to take solace in is that was a previous regime. And, you know, (laughs) Every two years we have a new one. So, you know, we wash away the sins of the old regime and, and just try and hope and, and see that things will be different. But that is, uh, that is, that is pretty amazing. Still uh, hard to <laughs> swallow though. Still hard to swallow. It is. It is. Um, you know, what's interesting, I guess what's interesting to me about Giannis's story, and I'm going to try and connect it a little bit to, um, you know, kind of your rise as a writer in the sports writing industry uh, and a lot of podcasts that I've seen, you know, you talking about your own journey is, you know, just overcoming different obstacles, um, whether it's been layoffs at previous publications, restructuring, um, through it all, one constant theme that you've mentioned in your journey is um, determination and resilience. Uh, if you can go back to whether it's, you know, either childhood or, or just something personal, where do you think that comes from? The ability to really uh, move through different obstacles and kind of keep your eyes on the prize and, and what really your dream is for yourself as a writer. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes from, so before there was basketball dream, I mean, before there was writing dream, there was basketball dream. So I, you know, wanted to be in the WNBA and I was still am really small and five feet tall. And so the whole thing was like an uphill battle, but I played, you know, my entire life. And I think the resilience comes from so many people always doubting me, like you're too small, you're never going to make it, you know, you're nothing, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it just, so many teams like just wouldn't even give me a shot. Like I would get cut. Oh, you're five feet. Like it was just uh, so much of my basketball journey was resilience. You know, I finally got division one, um, you know, I was finally getting recruited by division ones and then I tore every ligament in my foot. So my whole basketball career was like push and work and disappointment and push and work and disappointment. And so I learned so much resilience from chasing that dream. And I did end up playing my first year, um, of college basketball at a small school in Oregon, but it was a terrible experience. And it, again, it was like push resilience, um, keep believing in yourself. And I think when I wanted to become a writer, I finally was able to like see that those skills were just inherent in me built up. It wasn't like they're only applicable to my basketball dream. Then I started having this new writing dream and it was like the work ethic and all of those 
disappointments led me to take the same thing here. And it's, it's funny that I want things that are very challenging. Um, you know, certainly like before it was the height was the problem. Then here it was like being a woman is a problem. And, um, and also being small. Cause like, you know, you're trying to box out in the scrums and everyone's so tall and you got to like use your, your five foot, you know, hustler skills to get to the front. So I think, um, yeah, I just think that I, it was almost like a continuation of all those like childhood lessons um, in sports writing. And I think for me, the ultimate dream, like I realized that I love features. I love writing about people. Um, they're, they're professional athletes um, at the top of their game, but it's, I feel like I write more about the person than the athlete. And so I think the ultimate dream for me is like books. That's, you know, this is the start of that new dream and track. Um, so hopefully I can pull it off. Um, and also just continuing to write long form stories. I think that would be so cool to keep doing those things. Of course, uh, and we would love to read them. So we hope you do keep keep doing them for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> you mentioned something uh, about, you know, obviously being, you know, scrappy and hustling. And you also compared your previous basketball playing style to Patrick Beverly, <laughs> our, our big Patrick Beverly fans. Um, <laughs> And, and so that's your basketball style. And, and we know that you have your own writing style as well, but who are some of your influences in writing, whether it's just in sport writing or, or just in general, who do you draw from when you're kind of creating your own unique style as well? Dude, you guys have done your homework and I'm, I'm feeling this pod right now. Um, and I, it's so funny. I have a friend that hates Pat Beverly. So when I said that they were like, I'm going to disown you anyways, I love his hustle. And that was very me, um, writing. I love Wright Thompson. I think I've spent my whole career trying to be him. I'm nowhere near, um, Gary Smith, uh, Jeff Perlman, um, Lee Jenkins. So those are like my sports people. And then regular is like, as you can see, I love books like Toni Morrison, um, Louise Erdrich, um, Kiese Lehman, um, trying to think. Um, mm, mm, mm. Of course, when somebody asks you, like, what are your fave books? You're like, books? What are books? Um, so hard. So I think those are my faves. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, and then going into, uh, you know, the LaMelo Ball pieces were so interesting for a lot of reasons. The Ball family is is super interesting, obviously a lightning rod um, for attention. But I think that the the growth of LaMelo in both pieces that you detailed uh, and the differences were really interesting to me. I think one of the things that st stood out to me in the first piece is kind of LaVar's characterization of why, um, you know, he took LaMelo to... Lithuania, you know, and he explains that, you know, it's, it's a small area, there's maybe not a lot going on, and you've got to go there to create buzz. And through that, you know, you can kind of, kind of get more attention. Um, and then throughout that piece, I feel like you also try to draw, you know, kind of you, you point out this question of is he is he growing up, despite what's going on here, you know, if dad is kind of clearing hurdles in his way, is he really growing in that situation? Did you feel like you found the answer to that um, at the end of either the, the first piece or the second piece? I feel like he was not growing at the first piece. And then I think it took him going to Australia where his dad wasn't as involved to grow more. But I still, 
LeVar was still obviously like part of it. And I think there it's sort of like if he all stories take you on a journey and it's sort of like an arc of LaMelo's arc is like a classic coming of age. And I think in order for him to come of age, he has to learn like the appropriate balance between father influence and personal independence. And I think it's I think he's still negotiating that. Like, I think it's still the like it's still to be determined, which is so normal, right? Like with our own families and our own relationships, sometimes these things go on until 20s and 30s. And so I think like 40s, you know, LaMelo has so much time to like figure that out. But I think, I think with each piece I wrote, I saw more growth and I saw more like reflection. And I think his life was moving so fast. He didn't really have time to reflect at first because mm. he's, he's, his whole life is like performance. So sometimes like when you're so, you're just performing, 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 you don't really like stop and think. And he's finally had time to stop and think. There's almost more of like a focus on the result as opposed to the journey. You know, he's he's been so hyper competitive and had one goal his entire mind in terms of getting to the NBA that, um, you know, you forget that all of these real human issues that any normal teenager would face, not, you know, having your prom or, or things like that um, are very real for him. Um, but something else that kind of stood out to me was you know, when the, the coach, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce the name because it, it's going to be so difficult, but the team in Lithuania that, that Lamella was playing for, he essentially tells you, and I couldn't believe his candor, he says that, you know, this is a joke, you know, it's not really real. <laughs> um, and now, I, I guess this is like a two-part question. So I guess I would have thought he would have been more tight-lipped considering the publicity that the league was getting. Well, do you feel like this was just you know, boiling over of frustration of maybe his role, you know, being undermined by LaVar on the coach? Or do you just think he was very comfortable speaking with you? I mean, I got to feel like as a writer, that's, that's a pretty like amazing moment. It's like, wow, like, that's a huge quote for this story. But what was your take on it? I mean, when it was happening, I was like, did he Avis, you know, and like during the game, like turning to me and stuff, it was just like so bizarre. It would never happen in America. But I think, um, I think part of it, I do think I built up the trust. You know, if somebody shows up every day for three weeks, you know, that person cares and that person is dedicated. And I think he saw that in me. Um, but I also think he didn't really take me seriously. I think a lot of them didn't at all. They knew I was a reporter because I said I was, but like, like I said, like five foot woman walking into the gym I think they were just kind of like okay like she'll write her little blog like I don't think they knew that I was like a legit reporter like I don't think they took you know so which is fine but I was truthful and honest but I just don't think they really took me seriously and maybe that's why they just said whatever they wanted to say like the <laughs> to team be honest. did it like the team didn't or yeah the the team the coach like I, they were all just kind of like they knew I was a reporter but it's I don't know there's a tendency I've noticed when some people are talking to me they um like they forget that I'm a reporter okay. um and I think they just oh whatever like she's writing her little thing like I don't think they knew that I was like a real journalist you know that it was going I guess, to I, guess I guess everywhere. I don't look like yeah. one. Yeah, I guess I I don't know. But I I was just like, did he really just say this? <laughs> like, mm. oh my god, he did. <laughs> mm. 
so I brought up Marco Fultz earlier and I meant to bring up because mostly because I read your thing about Fultz and I remember reading it before after you wrote about him after he got traded to Orlando. But uh, you talked about behind the scenes stuff with him when he was uh, interacting with teammates and some of the stuff that when he was in Philadelphia, some of the stuff that stuck out with me was pretty much how well liked he was with his teammates. And like, uh, I think TJ McConnell was someone that he really got along with. And you talked about how he bought his teammates Xboxes, like customized Xboxes. And he, they all just really liked him. And I think the, the thing that sticks out the most though, has to be when he's talking with Justin Anderson about how he's watching this reporter on TV, talk trash about him. And he's just listening to it and not walking away. And then Justin Anderson asks him, why are you watching this? And he's like, I don't care, man. They don't know me, whatever. Yeah. And it's just like, it's such a, just such a cool line to hear a pro athlete say something like that. And now to see how successful he is now and he gets his contract. So I just wanted to ask you, what were like your takeaways from the Fultz interview? What did you think of him? And how surprised are you if, if at all about his bounce back in Orlando and his success? I mean, I'm really impressed by him, like not just athletically, but I think when you interview like 15 to 20 people about somebody and they all say the same thing, like such a nice dude, you can kind of, you know, you can believe it. And I think like everyone, that's all they would say about him. Such a nice guy, you know, and I think it's like very telling when that's the first thing that people say about you is like what kind of a teammate you are. And I think it when your career is not going well, it's like very easy to be a bad teammate. It's very easy to let your own frustrations come off as being angry at other people and pissed off. But to hear that his energy was so bright during this awful shitstorm of media and everything going wrong was like, wow, I have so much respect for like the man, the person that he is, you know? Um, Cause I think that takes a lot of maturity to be able to like hold your head up high and still ask your, your teammates, like, how are you doing today? Like, can I help with anything? You want to plan a birthday party for your cousin or whatever? Like, I think like, that's so cool that he had the maturity to do that. And then as far as the other stuff, um, I think one of the images that really stuck out to me during the process was how people would like avoid him almost like he had a sickness, like, because he was doing so badly. And I felt I felt for him because imagine like people think there's something like wrong with you as a human when really he's just like a normal person going through injury struggling you know so I I found it I found that like really heartbreaking but what the quote that you mentioned to me it was like so interesting because you know for us in media when somebody says our article sucks like it kind of hurts like let's be honest it kind of hurts <laughs> but <laughs> when so many people are saying this about you and you're like, you know what? I don't care. I think that's just a different level of mental fortitude that we can all learn from. Like, think about that. Like so many thousands of people say you suck and you're lying and all these things. But if you believe in who you are, it's almost like you're just generally not listening to what people are saying. And that's so, that's such an unbelievable skill. Yeah. I think JJ Reddick talked about faults on his podcast and about how guys, like you said, avoided him like he pretty much they were going to catch whatever he had, I think is what Reddit called it. And it was like yeah. and it was that's I mean, it seems terrible in hindsight, obviously. But the way the way they covered him, oh, my God, they were just so brutal on him. And it's 
God, it's obviously read your piece about it. And it's it's just so interesting, the whole thing surrounding him now that you look at how accomplished he is now. But yeah, it's uh, it's been really impressive what he's done. So I'm happy he got paid. But uh, as far as I just want to go back to Giannis real quick. I do want to talk about Giannis again. Uh, sorry, I wanted to ask what. Uh, Oh God, I totally forgot my question. I totally forgot because we sorry, right, Chip, yeah. if you if you want me to, I can I can jump in. Yeah, go ahead. I totally forgot. Well, so it's 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 interesting too to me to you know between discussing whether it's the false false piece or the Lamelo piece, um, I'm sure for any writer the ability to sit across from the person you're interviewing and and the way you talk about your writing and the ability to storytell. Um, because we're talking about people, right? They're humans first. They have a whole bunch of things that are going on and affecting their lives um, outside of the sport. You know, what, whether it's something, you know, specifically that just comes natural to you or um, how do you, you know, how do you think about the process of building trust with somebody um, and, and respecting boundaries and, is that something that takes a long time, you know, in terms of how you research the people that you profile or, you know, it's it, that to me as somebody who, who doesn't do this professionally, um, I think that's such an interesting thing to me because there are certain people who, you know, professional athletes or anybody in the public eye will open up to maybe more so than others. And just in your experience, how has that skill um, grown? Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, this is this is really at the core of like what I aspire to do and, and do. It's like building trust and intimacy with a stranger is like really hard. It takes a really long time. And so I kind of look at the process of like, think of like the worst thing that's ever happened to like you or me. Like it probably took us like a very long time to tell somebody best friend whoever relationship like it, it probably was like really really hard so I come into my stories like with this empathetic understanding that like okay we're about to talk with somebody about some really intense things that you know is going to be hard for them to talk about and so I don't just jump right into that you know I try to like I build up trust by asking about other parts of their life first. I think it's kind of like a running joke with some of the athletes I interview. So you're going to ask me about basketball yet? And it's like, <laughs> it's like, no, I want to talk about your mother. Um, and I think like, I, I think it's, I don't do it on purpose. I just don't find that the most interesting part, you know, that was like basketball me. Now I'm like different, you know, and I think the best profiles combine the sport and the human, but you have to start on some level of humanity with somebody to even get to anywhere, you know? So I think like it, it's, it's in the way that you ask questions. It's not like, so tell me, you know, Giannis um, and his brother. So tell me about your dad dying of a heart right. attack. Like that's not the approach at all. I think that we didn't even get into that until like five hours in. Um, so, you know, and other times I don't have a lot of access and a lot of time and I have to get to, I always joke with my editor, time to get to somebody's soul in 10 minutes. And it's really hard because you can't do that. You cannot do that. So I think now I pass on stories that are not going to give me the time and space to do what I want to do. 
um, which is something I didn't do early on in my career. And I probably regretted some stories, but I, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But now I feel like, you know, if somebody doesn't want to invest that time with me and try to build that and talk about something real, then I don't really want to waste my time with them anyway. Right. And I can understand that. that. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say, no, no. I was just going to say you should interview the Lopez brothers because I feel like when Brooke oh, Lopez would be great, yeah, when Brooke was in Brooklyn, he would always say, why do you guys always want to talk about basketball? I felt like he would say that all the time. <laughs> like my actual dream. Yeah, that would be really, really cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that would be, be great. That, yeah, that that interview would go a lot of different mm-hmm. ways for sure. <laughs> um, another thing that I saw, you know, just in terms of, of your writing process that really stood out to me was that, you know, one of the the ways that you kind of structure your writing is you have, you know, kind of a, a section called, you know, just getting the words out, right? Don't worry about being a perfectionist. I think that was something that spoke to me specifically because I think you worry so much about the structure early on that you actually lose focus of some of the ideas in your mind that could potentially make the piece really great. Um, so I thought that was a really cool thing to hear from you know, uh, someone as successful as yourself, like, listen, just get the bad draft out of the way, just get all of your ideas on paper, then make sense of them afterwards. Um, Is that something that you you still do now as well? Yes, you should have seen my awful first draft um, for this thing due today's Monday due today that I did Friday was terrible. And I was (laughs) like, Oh, just just get the words out, just do it. And I was like, No, this is so bad. Um, So yeah, that's my process every time. It's like, I've learned that I can't make the perfectionist go away. Like I had to name her, like her name is Polly and she's with me for life. (laughs) She's with me for life. I don't like her, but I have to be kind to her because I need to embrace this side of me. It does good things too, but she also tries to destroy me. So I need to be like, it's okay, Polly, we can, we can do this draft together. So you know, I think like learning to live with that voice has been like a huge challenge for me. And like getting the words out is my way of being like, you know what, Polly, like, I'm just gonna listen to me right now. I'm not gonna try to write the story, capital S story. I'm just gonna write. And I think doing that, like so many times I find that like what I what's originally just up in here in my consciousness that comes out in that shitty first draft. Some of it really ends up in the final version. And I think that's because sometimes our most primal thoughts and creative impulses are correct. And it kind of comes without like trying to write, if that makes sense. Hmm. I think um, there was one other. Chip, did you did you come back to the honest one? No, I was just going to say that does make sense because I feel like I write a bunch of stuff on my phone on notes all day when it just pops in my head not that I'm comparing myself to you at all but I just (laughs) feel like I just feel like I just feel like that happens like if an idea pops into my head I write something on my phone on notes just like to make sure that I don't forget it like that's something that I do but uh in regards to the Giannis question I did remember that um it was about what Adam Silver said about the Giannis thing that uh he feels like it's a win for the CBA because somebody signed the Supermax with their team that they were drafted by, and it's a small market team. So I wanted to know if you thought that Giannis staying in Milwaukee 
was, you know, a win for the NBA if you thought it was a good thing or if him going to like the Heat or the Warriors would have been better, like a big market team? I mean, I think it is a win in the sense of like you're trying to restore some form of like everybody's not going to the super teams, but I don't think it's going to cause other people to necessarily try what he's doing. I just think it was like a unique situation where they drafted him and took a gamble on him. And he felt like the small market was right for him. It fits with his personality. A lot of the other guys in the NBA, like it would not fit with their personality to live in Milwaukee. So I think Giannis's blueprint really only works for him. Um, it could work for somebody like down the line. I'm not saying it won't, but I just think like his doesn't really tell me anything about the NBA or the era we're living in. I think it just tells me that like Giannis is built differently. He thinks differently. Everything about him dodges convention. And this move is like so much in line with, with being like a different modern NBA superstar. Like Dame. He reminds you of Dame, like the same yeah. thing with Portland. And it, it, it does. It does. But even even more so, even less so, I guess, because um, although Dame also like, yeah, was not like primed to be like superstar and mm-hmm. like, you know, big time college program. But Giannis literally was not supposed to be anything. So right. it, it is such a unique case. Um, going back to uh, the, the LaMelo ball pieces, one thing also between the two pieces that that stuck out to me was um, and, and totally correct me if you think I'm wrong or mischaracterizing kind of like the, the first piece, but I did feel right. Like, I, I think that uh, Lavar, there's certainly at least, at least some critical aspect to Lavar's um, not necessarily vision for LaMelo, but how he, how he carries it out. Um, were you surprised at all to get, more access to LaMelo uh, for the second piece at all um, after, after the first piece? Or, you know, did you feel that the, the family responded well to the first piece and, and they were totally fine with, with the second piece? Yeah, I mean, I thought there's no way they're going to talk to me for the second piece because I literally said their thing was a joke. Like, not I didn't say it, but I right. the piece the piece like was the only non-fluff piece about this family. It was like everyone was like, "Oh my god, this is so cool!" And then my piece comes out, and it's kind of like actually, it's a sham. Um, <laughs> and the, and the boy is being exploited. Like it was very dark. So I was like, "There's no way they're going to talk to me for the second one." So. Um, so I, I kind of went in knowing like, you know, what, I'm not going to get LeVar for the second one. I'm sure. Um, I actually didn't hear from them, which was like very surprising. I thought he, you know, because he, especially with women reporters, he's very like, right. I will say what I think. So yeah. I, I was yeah. like prepare, preparing for him to like try to dunk on me in every way possible. And it just didn't happen. So um, I guess the feedback I got later was that it was, they thought it was fair. Like it was, because it was fair, you know, it, it, it didn't just, it didn't paint LeVar the way that other people paint him, which is this like maniacal, um, or deified person. I, I don't think he's all knowing and I don't think he's terrible. I just think he's like a dad who goes too far sometimes and there's bad parts to him. And then there's like awesome parts to him. And so here's all of him. How many of us don't have complicated dads? So I think like, 
I think they respected that, that it wasn't so absolute. Um, but he also changed agents between the two things. So the second piece, he was with CAA. So I was working through a different agent for that. So I think that might have helped too, is that these were like a whole new group of representation um, that I wasn't working with the previous. The previous one was with, um, what's that guy's name? Um, Harrison something, Lonzo's former agent. Um, so they all switched to CAA. So. Um, I think that might have helped a bit. Um, Not that guy's and, name. And then um, last Lamelo Lamelo question I wanted to ask. Um, this came up a lot in his draft evaluation, and I heard Bobby Marks talk about him as well as as someone who spent a lot of time kind of counseling him through the draft process. But I one thing that you wrote that I thought was super interesting, and I think a lot of times people misinterpret or, or misevaluate a, a young teenager's, whether it's, it's facial expression or kind of bat, body language on or off the court. Um, you know, a lot of people think that LaMelo's relaxed, you know, his kind of relaxed personality um, is, is a lack of focus. Um, but I, I think that, or I think there was even the story that, that you uh, told that after a big game, I think there was a loss, he kind of was making a joke with you. And then you were saying, oh, you know, how can you still have your sense of humor? And he was like, you know, you have to because this game will, will make you crazy if you don't. Do you think that that can help him in the NBA? Because I think the ability to have a short memory during a long season, uh, especially when there's a lot of travel uh, and people are, you know, with each other so much. I think that, that that ability to kind of, you know, push that game aside, put it on the back burner and focus on the next night can be really big for him. Is that something that you you can see as more of a, a positive as opposed to, I think a lot of people see it as a negative. Yeah, I, it's a positive. It's a superpower. I think that's why he doesn't let the moment overwhelm him. Like no moment is too big for him because he has a calmness about him. I think like where people misunderstand it, they think it, they think it means he doesn't care or that yeah. he's like lackadaisical, but I think Lamelo's in an unwinnable position in terms of his demeanor because if he's loud and boisterous, they're going to be like, wow, he's so immature. So he's trying to be quiet and calm and they're like, he doesn't care. He's too relaxed. So I think it's like, <laughs> he can't like do either, you know, because either of them are like unacceptable. So when he shows his more gregarious sides, they use that as like fodder to say he's immature. Um, when he tries to be like, you know, stoic, they, they mistake it for like not a leader. Um, and I think that all these things are so false. I think um, there's a reason why every teammate like really loves Mello. Like, I think that was one of the things I noticed. They all love him. They, some might be jealous of him like overseas because he was bringing a lot of attention, but for the most part, they really liked him. And I think um, you can see how like his teammate, his new teammates in Charlotte, like, to be able to catch that ball where they, where he gives it to them, like, I'm sure they love the hell out of him right now. Yeah. And, and I think like he, he looks calm cause he is like, I think that the, the hard parts of his life were always outside of basketball. And so basketball was like the one place where he didn't have to like perform as being LaMelo ball. He could just like play basketball, which ironically is not a performance for him. Yeah. His facial expression never changes. So no yeah. matter the situation, it's really impressive. 
I, I mean, he's and he yeah, he already looks like he has a great rapport with pretty much all of his teammates. So but do you? Yeah. yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. Go do, ahead. Do, do you see how different players are regarded when they do that? Some players, when they're stoic like that, they're like the model leader. Like, look at his maturity. It's like, but when LaMelo does it, they're like, oh, he doesn't give a shit. And it's because mm -hmm. of a lot of different factors. But right. I've seen the same face from so many guys who are like respected for the same thing that he's mocked for. Makes no, it, it, I get, I get why it happened. I know why it happens but it's stupid. I think you know. that's the other tough part too. And I think you see it a lot in draft evaluation as well, right? Like, I, you know, I think you could go back years of, of prospects that, you know, if, if someone doesn't show emotion on the court, they're not fiery enough or just kind of the di dichotomy that you pointed out. And at the end of the day, you're still talking about kids that are 18, 19, 20 years old that are growing and de developing, you know, at such a young and, and, fast age I mean who knows how they'll be when they're 23 24 and 25 what ends up happening is that you need to have some type of really good environment around them whatever team drafts them to be able to develop them as players you know but as young men too you know and I think that that's sometimes a, something that gets forgotten in kind of the process of you know how a player plays on the court there's also kind of this off, off the court maturity piece that that it's like we we don't really remember or kind of put too much into sometimes i mean why do they think they should grow into their bodies but not their minds like i think that's so weird like of course like just you know you talk to an 18 year old guy like not a basketball player you know what you're getting when you're talking to an 18 year old guy i don't know why the expectations are any different for an 18 year old guy who happens to play basketball for a living right <laughs> you know but I think, but it's funny that you say that because to me, the line that sticks out in the LaMelo piece that really kind of symbolizes what you just said was when um, LaMelo is describing his tattoo and he says that, you know, I, the, I have these wings out here and I feel like angels are with me. And then he goes on to essentially describe that a lot of people see me and they don't know me. They think I'm arrogant. They think I'm this, they think I'm that, but people, people don't know me. And then he kind of struggles to explain what he's, he's trying to articulate, but it's that's like it that's like essentially what you're talking about the the piece of of lamello ball being this global superstar um from ig and and whatever it is just being in the spotlight from such a young age um and people not actually knowing who he is so it's like i almost felt like reading your piece that he actually wants to speak out more and kind of tell us his story and be more of more of the author of 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 maybe what is 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 out there but you know i think it's just tough for him at the same time yeah i think he's like he's just in a position where if he says anything then he's seeking attention if he doesn't say anything then he's being elusive like right. it's just going to be a really long time before he can like distance himself from his family enough to where people like just look at him as a human of his, his own regard. Like, I would love to profile LaMelo again at age 35. Like, right. I would love to like, just go back and just be like, man, how miserable was Lithuania? And then just like get into it in a, in a perspective that he doesn't have yet. Yeah. So that's the danger in profiling young people. They, they know what they feel right now, but they might, you know, we all look at things differently as time goes on. We all like 
you know, alter memory and change memory. And um, he, he has a lot more living to do. So. Do you think the perception of him would be different if he'd have played a year at Kentucky or Duke or Carolina or someplace like that? I think it would be a little bit different, but I think there would be so much like media attention for his dad that it would have harmed him in a lot of ways. I'm sure he would have ended up at the exact same draft position, but Mm -hmm. I think like it was kind of nice for him to not be in the U S during this time period. Um, Kind of a, just before we're, we're wrapping up, um, is there any chance that you will be working with or interviewing any of the current New York Knicks (laughs) future or at some time, I'm sure I speak for chip and the rest rest of Knicks Twitter. Uh, We would love to be reading something like that coming out in the future. You know, as of right now, nothing is slotted, but if you want to send me some ideas, I'm open. Oh, listen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we could think of uh, more than a couple of players that, that we would love, um, you know, for you to, to interview and whatnot. A hundred percent for sure. I love that. I love Frank, that. Frank Nielakina, hopefully he's still on the team. That's a, hopefully. That's, a, that's, a, that's a Nick's Twitter favorite right there. So that, that's, that's, that'll, that'll get a lot of clicks, that one for sure. Chip, Nick's Twitter, have, let me know. Yeah, they will. <laughs> they will. Uh, Chip, do you have anything else for Miriam before? No, no, just thank you for making time for us. Thank you. Oh, thank you for the wonderful questions and for understanding what I love to do. This was really fun. Yeah, uh, this was really a pleasure for us. Um, you know, Chip and I, when we started this podcast, and we say it all the time, we just wanted to interview people who love basketball and and work in various, you know, different areas of either the NBA or writing about the NBA, coaching, scouting, training. We've really tried to, you know, get a wide ranging array of guests um, that just love basketball. So I feel like whenever you have that in the combination, it makes the conversation really great and no different tonight. Uh, Miran, thank you so much for your time. Before we let you go, if you could tell the people listening where they can find you on Twitter and um, all of your great work. Um, Yeah, I am. I'll spell my name. It's M-I-R-I-N-F-A-D-E-R. That's my Twitter. Um, I am that uncool person that does not have Instagram. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) too late now I'm like I didn't get it I'm not gonna get it um and then my website I would love it if you could look at it I spent so much time on it it's just my first and last name mirandfader.com and thank you again for having me that was I'll come back if I do the next thing oh (laughs) (laughs) absolutely um okay and so for everybody listening we hope everybody is staying safe and we will talk to you guys soon peace